Well, I think an amen is due after the singing of the choir and the hymn that we've just sung, for we've spent this time in prayer, our thoughts and hearts being directed to the Lord. Would you now open your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, to the verse that we've been using as a starting point, a touchstone through these four weeks of January as we've thought about our church in the 90s. I'm looking especially at verse 10 that says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder I laid a foundation. Another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. One of the noted characteristics of our culture as we enter the 90s is an increasing tendency toward individualism. I believe that this is an indication of societal degeneration. An example of that is in the way that we view liberties or rights as a people. Traditionally and historically, our liberties were viewed in reference to the good of the whole of society. But in the last 25 years or so, the liberties or the rights that people talk about are merely personal rights without any respect to the welfare of society or of others. This same tendency toward privatization is seen in the church of Jesus Christ. We are a private people. We tend to have difficulty relating to others, whether in small groups or large. We talk about personal salvation. And of course we should because salvation is personal. One is saved as a person. But on the other hand, we are called of Jesus Christ to be the people of God, not the persons of God. Schaefer put it this way, Salvation is individual, but not individualistic. People cannot become Christians except one at a time, and yet... Our salvation is not solitary. God's people are called together in community. I believe that to the extent that we allow ourselves to withdraw from others and practice our faith unto ourselves as individuals alone, we are worldly. We need to recover the sense of corporate identity that God wants us to have as his people. God has called us to be a part of something that is far bigger than we ourselves alone. Let me suggest this morning four aspects to the church that God has called you to be a part of and to share in. In the first place, there is the cosmic church. You are identified with all believers from the first century, the day of Pentecost, until the present. That is the cosmic aspect of the church. And then there is the global church, for you are in the same body with Christians in every culture and every nation in the world right now at this time. The global church. And then there is the regional church. For you and I are one with other believers in this region. Let's say for 
illustration's sake, the Twin Cities region, however you may define that. We who believe in Jesus Christ in this region are a body of people. And then fourthly, there is the local church. For you and I are joined in heart and purpose with others with whom we regularly meet for fellowship and worship. It is the local aspect of the church that is the emphasis in the New Testament, though the others are also clearly seen. It's hard for us to identify with the cosmic reality of the church, to think of being one with those who've already died, who lived generations or centuries ago. It's somewhat easier, at least in our day of fast communication and transportation, to think of the global church and how we relate to others in other parts of the world. It's still easier to think of the regional church, but perhaps the most important, the most real aspect of the church to us and to any people is the local church. It is in the local church that God has called us primarily to invest our energy, our time, our money, our gifts. And God has designed us each of us, to make a contribution to the good of the whole local church. There are no exceptions to that. Dr. R.G. Lee, who was for decades one of the greatest preachers of America, pastored a great church in Memphis, Tennessee, related a story during his ministry regarding tools in a tool room of a master carpenter. Late at night, the tools were wrangling and quarreling among themselves, says Dr. Lee. Brother Hammer had the floor, but the other tools were shouting for him to leave because he was so noisy. Worse, they said, if he wasn't banging around, he was always clawing at things. Well, if I'm to leave the carpenter shop, then Brother Punch must leave too. He's so insignificant that when he has finished his work, he seems to have made no impression at all. Well, Brother Punch saw the point and said, If you wish I go, I will do so, but Brother Screw must go with me. You have to turn him around and around again and again to get him into anything. Brother Screw said, Well, turn me out if you wish, and I'll go, but Brother Plain has to leave also. He seems to be doing a lot of work around here, but it's all superficial, surface work with no depth to it at all. Well, Brother Plain responded thinly, I'll glide out if you wish, but Brother Rule must get out too. He's always laying down on the job and measuring others by his own standards. Well, Brother Rule said he'd not get out of line, <clears throat> but he added, if I go, then Brother Sandpaper must go with me because he's always rubbing things the wrong way. Never leaves things as they are, but always tries to smooth things over. Well, Sandpaper said, if I go, I'll go. But Brother, Brother Rasp goes too, since he likes to trim edges and cut corners. Brother Rasp laughed, saying, if we both go, then Brother Saw must go, since he works against the grain most of the time. Well, Brother Saw didn't see it that way. He said, it's all Brother Nail's fault. He drives himself into things sharply and has a piercing way about himself. 
Well, Brother Neil was bent out of shape over that cut. Soon the tools had wrangled away the night, and the master carpenter arrived for his day work. He put on an apron and went to the bench and regarded his plan. He had a pulpit he wished to make that would last through the ages of the world and would be used to proclaim the message of his love and grace to men. He took the rule and measured some boards, and then he used the saw to cut them to length. He reached for the plane and the rasp to trim them properly. He used the hammer, the screw, and the punch. He finished his pulpit by smoothing it with sandpaper. By day's end, the master carpenter completed his pulpit, and it was perfect. After he had gone, the tools were silent. They had discovered that the master carpenter had a work for each of them to perform, and that when each of them worked together with the others, the work was accomplished. The master carpenter's will was done, and the work was perfect because each tool submitted itself to that which it was brought into existence to do. I think from that parable you can see the point, can't you? In all of our diversity and differences, God has called us together to build a local church, a pulpit, if you please, to proclaim the grace and the glory of God. He has called us together to build a local church that is consistent with His Word, using principles that are effective and God-honoring. But what kind of a church is that? What are those principles? And what will our church look like in the 90s if we use them? Well, we've talked about seven of them thus far this month, and I want to close out this series this morning by pointing out an eighth. I believe that God would have us to be in the 90s a church where everyone feels a sense of ownership and commitment to the mission that God has given us. Now, a mission is a specific assignment that God gives to us. It is a task He wants us to fulfill. It is our reason for being called into existence. On our worship folder, we have printed for you a mission. You may want just to take a look at that. It's there every Sunday. In fact, it's there so much that maybe we've forgotten it's there. But on the back of the, not the worship folder, but the newsletter, you find at the bottom a listing of the staff, but just above that it says, Grace Church Roseville is a community of believers. We're not individuals only. We are a community of believers whose purpose is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, evangelizing the lost, and edifying its members through teaching the Word, service, and fellowship. We believe that that statement gives the broad sense of purpose for us as a congregation. I'd like to compare that statement this morning to an arrow, at least to the shaft of the arrow. The shaft that must be straight and well-formed in order for that arrow to hit its mark. But there is another part to an arrow besides the shaft, and that is the point. It is the head of the arrow, it is the tip, that is sharp, so that when the shaft is let go by the bow, it flies straight and punches the target and sinks in because it has that sharpened edge on the front of it. 
that we call the head or the tip of the arrow. If this is in fact, this statement is in fact our shaft, what is the point, what is the tip that will cause our arrow to sink in and strike home at the target? I'd like to suggest to you that our more specific mission, that sharpened head of the arrow, can be described in terms of the cultural keys that we have talked about now for a number of months. Some time ago, we, I drew up a statement regarding cultural keys, trying to explain the need for them and to define them. I'd like just to read a couple of sentences from this for you. Many of you have seen this. Some of you have it in your hands and materials given to you in your leadership positions. But here is what cultural keys is all about. We live in a time when traditional methods of evangelizing are of questionable effectiveness. People in our generation are generally distrustful of institutions, and that includes the religion and the church. Many have low tolerance for verbal witness that is not undergirded with demonstrable faith. They want to see religious conviction and profession fleshed out in practical, meaningful ways. Such give credibility in their thinking to the witness of the gospel message proclaimed. Cultural keys. <clears throat> cultural keys are those means by which believers can gain the privilege of presenting the living Christ to the lost. They create the possibility of relationships that allow the unconverted to see and feel the reality of God's love so that they can hear and believe the truth of his love. These keys especially focus on felt needs. Our challenge is to uncover the needs of people that can be addressed by our God-given resources and develop means or keys that can be employed by the people of Grace Church Roseville to unlock the hearts of secular people. Once the heart is opened, the gospel can be effectively communicated. The other evening, I went down to see the Timberwolves play. They may not have a winning season this year, but they're sure fun to watch. But in between some of the action, I was looking around at the crowd that was there, almost 25,000 people. And it struck me as I looked at them, big and short and tall and large and beautiful and not so, and quite a variety. And as I looked at them, I thought, you know, here are the sons and the daughters of Adam. And their lives are wrapped up in so many different things. And the development of our culture has shut the door to their lives. And again, I thought to myself, what are the keys that will allow us to open the door to their lives? so that we can gain entrance and have a credible, meaningful witness to them for Jesus Christ. I believe that God wants that to be the mission, the more specific tip of the arrow for Grace Church Roseville. There are other churches who are doing similar things. 
They may use different kinds of language to describe it. I would like for us to think in terms of cultural keys. In fact, I was thinking last night, maybe it would be good for us to have a display somewhere. Uh, talking about keys. And then listing there the various cultural keys that God leads us in the church to develop. As we said last week, those keys are going to be developed as a result of personal vision of people in the church. It's not a matter of the church starting a ministry. It's a matter of you and me feeling released to do that ourselves by God's blessing and guidance. To say, I have a burden for this group or for this need or I'd like to see this happen. And then begin to pray and say, God, how would this, how could this need be met? How could this happen? And ask God to send us some co-laborers, perhaps another person or a, a group of people or a flock. And we could together labor on that specific cultural key. There are some of you that are already using a cultural key of your home. And you're starting Bible studies. You've had Bible studies in your home. Evangelistic studies. Or perhaps some of you have had the videotape series on family. And you've used that to invite neighbors in. To begin building a bridge. Opening the door to their lives. I believe that that is the mission that God wants us to have. It's proclaiming Christ to our generation. And finding by the Holy Spirit those forms of ministry that unlock the cultural doors. I believe if we're going to be the church God wants us to be in the 90s, we must be a church where everyone feels ownership in that. Where together we are committed to that mission. What do I mean by ownership? What do I mean by commitment? And using those terms, I'm saying that my attitude reflects this. This is something I buy into and I will therefore give myself to it. We as a church will be what God wants us to be in this decade to the extent that I and you and you and you and you buy into this mission. And say, if that's what God wants us as a corporate body together to do, then that's my mission too. And we commit ourselves to it. We've been primarily looking at Paul's epistles to the Corinthians as we've talked about this theme. I believe in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul describes to us in meaningful terms, what commitment is. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at his language, beginning in verse 19. Let's ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what is commitment? What does that mean to you? How should that be seen in my life, Paul? In verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9 Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The Apostle Paul is saying to us here essentially, a commitment means establishing priorities. Establishing priorities reflecting Christ's lordship. Paul says, my priorities are to be all things to all men. That means to those who are slaves, I become as a slave. To those who are under the law, I become as under the law. To those who are free, I become as one who is free. He says, I am under the law of Christ. In other words, he is saying the lordship of Jesus Christ causes me to establish priorities in my life. And I live by those. He explains this further as he goes on. He talks about the importance of discipline. He warns us to avoid the self-indulgence of the age, the first part of chapter 10. He tells us to flee from idolatry, whether that idolatry be a physical idol or it be something else in the heart that takes the place of Christ's lordship. And Then he concludes chapter 10 and verse 31 by saying, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ." The Lord Jesus Christ was a man who lived by priorities. His number one priority was the cross. And he set his face as a flint with determination and courage and moved toward that cross, letting nothing lead him off the track. He had other priorities, the priority of the twelve. And among the twelve, the three who were closest to him. He had the priority of going after those who sensed their need and turning away from those who were self-righteous and self-satisfied. Jesus was a man who lived by priorities, and I want to say to you that I believe commitment to the mission means, first of all, I need to struggle with priorities in my life, priorities that reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where I say I may be free in Christ, but I am under law to Christ. What kind of priorities? Well, it's impossible to describe all of those because priorities deal with every area of life. I need to think about priorities when it comes to my essential needs as a Christian. We've talked about three of those these weeks. Worship, relationship, and ministry. 
I need to understand what Christ's lordship means with a priority on worship. What Christ's lordship means with a priority in my relationship. What priority means in Christ's lordship in ministry in my life. I need to think of Christ's lordship with respect to my stewardship of life, my time, my money, my influence, my energy. What does it mean to say Jesus Christ is Lord of my purse as well as, well as my calendar? And believe me, he must be Lord of both of them, not one or the other, if he is Lord. What does it mean that he is Lord of my influence or my energy? I need to struggle with what lordship means with regard to my decisions in life. What I'm going to do. How I'm going to use my life. I need to struggle with lordship with regard to lifestyle decisions. The way I choose to act and to live. I believe that we don't take seriously enough what God expects of us in these areas. We are very creative with excuses as to why this or that doesn't apply, and Jesus' lordship doesn't apply to this point of my life or that point. But in fact, if I am committed to Jesus Christ and to the mission that he's given us as the people of God in this church, it means I must deal with lordship in every area of my life and establish priorities according to that. Is not it thought-provoking to, to consider that our children, those of us who have children, are following our example? What will your children think of the meaning of worship with God's people by following your example in attendance in worship? And remember the tendency is for the next generation to feel less commitment about things than the present one. And so as your children see your attendance pattern in worship, what do you think their pattern is going to be in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? And what about the mission of the church then that they're a part of? Will they contribute to it? You set the pattern now for them. As your children see the way you spend your money, the way you give to God, what is their response going to be when they're old enough and they have an allowance or they're earning their money? What will their sense of stewardship be by your example and mine? And you just talk about every area of life in that regard and it is sobering. Commitment means establishing priorities which reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. I'd like to turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul is talking about a specific issue of giving. But I want to pull out of this a principle rather than talking about the immediate context of giving. 
You may recall that the Corinthians had promised a number of months before Paul writes this letter to send an offering for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who were in persecution. And as yet they had not done that. That is the reason for chapters 8 and 9 of this letter. Paul wants to stir them up to remind them to keep their commitment. Basically what he is saying to them here is this. Commitment means keeping my promises. Commitment means keeping promises reflecting Christ's integrity. Jesus Christ keeps his promises. And if I claim to be his, then I need to keep my promises. That's commitment. Our honor is as good as our word, and whether we keep it. So Paul writes to them in verse 6, he says, Consequently, we urge Titus, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well, this gracious work being their giving goes on to say, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, their giving. I am not, a, a, uh, not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it, by your ability. In chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, that, as I was saying, you may be prepared, lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. See what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, folks, you promised. Now keep your promises. That's what commitment is. When you and I say that we're going to do something, commitment to the mission means that we do it. Even if it means that in the process we don't get to do what we might rather do. Or something has come up in the meantime that we would prefer. Or it's going to cost us more than we thought it was going to cost us. It means that when we give our word, we keep our word. That is what commitment is. It means keeping promises that reflect integrity. The integrity of Jesus Christ himself. Paul points to Christ as being the great example in chapter 8 and verse 9. This last fall, we uh, went through a process of putting together a church directory. I'm looking forward to that directory being out in a few weeks, uh, sometime here later in the spring. As a part of that process, uh, we had to sign up just hundreds of you for taking pictures. 
and later to come back and to view the proofs of the pictures. I want to tell you about this experience because I think it illustrates exactly what I'm talking about this morning, though some of you will be ashamed by it, and frankly I am too. As I talked with the company that was doing this work, they told me that the average rate of no-show, that means people who said they would be there for their picture at a certain time or those who said they would come to view the proofs at a certain time, was somewhere between 3 and 11 percent in the average church where they work. In Grace Church Roseville, it was 30 percent. As much as 10 times higher in our church when people didn't show up when they said they would be there. Now, there are some reasons for that. And the company understood some of the extenuating reasons in our particular situation as to why that was the case. But it's hard for me to think that there were that many reasons. A couple of weeks ago, we asked people to sign up to come to family night, and we had almost 150 people indicate they were coming to family night to play games. Fewer than half showed up. Now, I know in one family that uh, the daughter signed up the whole family to come and the parents didn't even know about it. That was mine. <laughs> so I know that there are sometimes legitimate reasons as to why people don't show up when they're thought to uh, have given their word to be there. But fewer than half, and some of those had not signed up. And we could talk about nursery commitments, or we could talk about uh, ministry pastors. We had a ministry pastors meeting a couple of weeks ago, and only a handful of the ministry pastors, the key leaders of our small churches, were there. Now, there were some who had good reasons why they couldn't be. But it's hard for me to think all of them did. You understand my point, don't you? I'm not trying to... Uh, be unkind, but I think that we have to understand that that is a character defect to the extent that it exists in our lives and in our church. Because, you see, commitment means, according to the Apostle Paul, keeping our promises. If we say we're going to do something, to do it. If we sign our name on the line, to keep that commitment. That's what commitment is all about. Commitment means establishing priorities reflecting Christ's lordship. Commitment means keeping promises reflecting Christ's integrity. But let's go back a couple of pages now to chapter 5 and see another way that Paul seems to talk about commitment. In chapter 5 and verse 14 he says, For the love of Christ controls us, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Wonderful words. Why are we to live? For Christ. Because he died for us and rose again. 
And so in chapter 6, he goes on to say in verse 1, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, and on and on he goes. And he describes the kind of tests that he went through. I believe that Paul is saying here, look, Jesus Christ died for us and rose again that we might live for him. Now that commitment means showing perseverance. It means establishing priorities. It means keeping promises. And it means showing perseverance. Reflecting Christ's love. That kind of love bears all things, says Paul in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. That kind of love endures all things. That kind of love never fails. It perseveres. One thing that you and I can know beyond any shadow of doubt, and that is that any commitment that we make is going to be challenged. It is going to be put to the test. And it's only right that that's the case. Because our commitments are to be made by faith. And faith is exposed through tests. I believe that God wants us to be the kind of a church that is committed. Where everyone has ownership in the mission that he's given to us. Now why is this commitment, why is this ownership so important? Because of what he says in chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says, here's the reason that I am so committed to my apostleship. Here's the reason that I persevere in the sufferings that I've endured. The reason is that one day I'm going to appear before Jesus Christ. And there I will be examined for my commitment. And that examination is going to be a searching one. It is compared to fire that burns up the chaff and that which is worthless in my commitment. All the holes in it will be exposed. Uh, but that which I have genuinely committed, that mission that I have sold myself to, that which I have purposed to do for the glory of God, that's going to pass the test. And for that we receive reward. Why is it worth it to be committed? Because we'll pass the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. I've tried to outline during this month in broad statements the kind of church that I believe God wants us to be in the 90s. What we look like 10 years from now will be determined by your response 
in my response to the challenges. Now, we can't expect a perfect church to emerge from all of this. There is no such thing in this world. Someone handed me, I think just last week, a little thing called the perfect church, a little poem that goes like this. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never gets the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none are proud and all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind, and to each other's faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them is known to me. But I'll still work and pray and plan to make my church the best I can. For Grace Church Roseville to grow toward the goal that we've laid before us, each of us must be willing to do our part as that tool that God has made us to be. That is going to require from each of us a willingness to evaluate our lives and a willingness for us as a church to evaluate what we're doing now. Is it the best that we can do? Is it effective? Is it on the cutting edge? What might work better? It means that we're going to need to discipline ourselves. If, in fact, we simplify expectations of ministry and create more free time, are we willing to discipline ourselves to use that freed-up time for the glory of God rather than upon our own pleasures and leisures? It means discipline. If we're going to be this kind of a church, it means we're going to need a new way of thinking about what ministry looks like. Instead of saying, worship looks like this, and anything beyond that is not worship, we've got to change. Or instead of saying, a ministry looks like this, and that's it, we've got to change our way of thinking about that. Ministry can take many different forms. Instead of saying, relationship to me is just this, and that's all it can be to anybody else. We need to see that relationships can take many different appearances and forms and accomplish the purpose. We need to get out of the boxes that we've put around our minds and open our eyes to see that ministry can look different than it does now and be God-honoring. But the bottom line to it all is commitment. For none of the possibilities that I've talked about, none of the principles that we've laid out this month will ever be realized unless each of us is willing and actually does do his part to bring it to pass. One Sunday morning, Carlos walked slowly up toward his church, a church that was located in the jungles in Colombia near the Venezuelan border. As he walked along, his Bible under his arm, he hummed some of his favorite hymns, anticipating the worship. After a lengthy walk, he came to the little hut where they worshipped. And stooping down, he entered in. <clears throat> there was one lone gasoline lamp that cast eerie shadows. But soon his eyes became accustomed to the dark, and as he sat there on the third bench... 
he looked up and he saw people sitting in front of him and he saw the pastor. And then Pastor Martinez got up and approached the pulpit to begin the service. And the music began to be heard as people burst into joyful singing. And then the sermon began. And as it did, Carlos noticed some strangers slip in the back, but he paid no attention to them. And then suddenly in the middle of the sermon, it was all interrupted. The men who had come in late pulled out automatic weapons and took strategic places in the room. They went to the front and grabbed the pastor and dragged him out the side door. Everyone was shocked and silenced. The air was thick with fear. Then the leader of the group returned, leaving uh, the pastor in charge of one of his men, <clears throat> and addressed the congregation. Those of you who believe this God stuff, come forward. Well, for a whole minute, nobody stirred. And then from the third row back, Carlos got up and walked toward the front. And as he went toward the front, some of the others in the congregation joined him. Brusquely, they were all herded out the side door. When no one else came forward, the guerrilla leader then looked at the remainder of the congregation with contempt. And he said, Out! Out! All of you! You have no right to be here. Only those with courage to stand up for what they believe can stay. And with that, everyone else was driven out of the church. And the amazed pastor and those who had joined him came back in and were seated. And the gorilla said, now continue with your service. And they left. Commitment is what it takes to get the job done. Why should we become a part of the church that I've just described in these four messages? Why should our church look like that? Because I believe that we're living in the twilight of the Western civilization, for one thing. As we have known our culture, it is soon to not exist anymore. The lights are almost out in our civilization. And we are called upon to be God's people at a time like this. As Esther was called to the kingdom for such a time as this, so you and I are called to be his people, God's people, in such a time as this. We need commitment to do it with effectiveness. And I believe that only the kind of church that I have broadly outlined in these principles that we've talked about is going to be that kind of a church in the 90s and beyond. If we are going to penetrate the increasing darkness, if we are going to bring hope to individuals that are in despair, if we are, by the grace of God, perhaps going to delay judgment to this civilization, then it's going to take the cutting-edge kind of a church described by the eight principles we've laid out during these messages. There are lives that hang in the balance. There are needs crying to be met. There's a culture out there whose doors are shut, but which is empty and desperately searching. Oh, God, give us hearts that are broken and wills that are broken before Jesus Christ 
So the putting away our silly excuses, we make him Lord. And we seek those cultural keys that will allow us to open the door and make a difference in the generation he's called us to serve. Let's pray. Well, I hope that your heart responds positively to this challenge. And that you sense commitment and an increasing ownership in the mission that we've talked about. That we might be the kind of church that we've described by the grace of God, for the glory of God. That we might build as wise master builders. Oh God, break our hearts with what breaks your heart. Fill us with love and compassion to serve you as your people in this age. And as a result of that, may we build a church that will stand the test. The test of time and the test of the judgment seat of Christ. So that we can give good account of ourselves on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.